That song we sang just um, brought recognition to the um, thought and the exclamation that we feel in our lives. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I've entitled the sermon today, Instead of Me. And Lavelle had no idea that I was going to teach or preach on that today. But that song we sang just highlighted many of the points directly that I um, was thinking of as I prepared today. Matthew 27, verses 11 to 26 talk about how Jesus died instead of Barabbas. And it's a vivid and a living illustration of the principle of substitutionary atonement. And the Bible has numerous and multiple pictures of the doctrine of substitution. Throughout the Old and New Testament, we have this idea of Jesus dying instead of me. Taking the punishment that was intended or that I had earned. Substitutionary atonement does not mean that I can do it, or that I am capable of dying if Jesus chooses not to. Substitutionary atonement simply means that sin came into the world as a result, or I'm sorry, death came into the world as a result of sin. Sin came into the world as a result of Adam and Eve's choices in the Garden of Eden. And God had said that if sin, if they sin, there would be death brought upon all mankind. Well, they sinned, and so death came upon all mankind. Immediately, there was spiritual separation, spiritual death. Much later, there was also physical death. But death is another word for separation. It means the same thing. Physical death is separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. So that when we're ever at a funeral or a, a viewing or of, of we're witnessing the separation of the spirit and soul from the body. But the Bible also talks about spiritual separation. Spiritual death. And Jesus took upon himself physical death, bore shame, bore the punishment that I had earned, that we had earned, that the human race had earned. And in that time of crucifixion, we have this story in all four of the gospel accounts of a man named Barabbas, who was set free because of Jesus taking his place. Barabbas is a name that most of us know. We've read the gospel stories. We're familiar with it. Besides that, there's been novels written and movies filmed that explore the imaginary, fictitious scenarios about who he may have been and what became of him after Jesus was crucified? The Bible doesn't give us 
many or only a few of those details. The truth is we know very little about Barabbas. Scripture gives us a few details besides his name and a list of the crimes that he was charged with. Well, substitution is one of the major themes of the Bible, as I've said. God instituted the principle of substitution in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. First of all, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, immediately after Adam and Eve sinned and they experienced spiritual separation from God, they realized, among other things, that they had lost something. There was a light that was gone or something was noticeably different. They realized that they were naked. They realized that they needed clothing. They realized that they needed cover. And God gave them skins from an animal. In Genesis 3.21, God clothed them with the skins of an animal. An animal's skin, an animal died, gave up its skin for their covering. Substitution. And God began to paint an even bigger picture of what it would take to bring mankind back into fellowship, proper relationship with, with him, his holiness. He demonstrated their complete inability to do that in and of themselves. Their unable, complete insufficiency to bring covering for themselves. God continued that theme with the children of Israel. Remember the story of the Passover. He granted a substitute for their sin where a lamb was killed so that they, and particularly the oldest son in the family, could live. He granted them a substitute to pay for the price of their sin. He made them responsible to make sure the blood was applied, though. The blood didn't magically appear on the door. They were responsible to apply the blood. The animal died in the sinner's place, and the sinner was allowed to go free. Leviticus 16 gives the story of what was called in Levitical times the scapegoat. And actually it was a double illustration. There were two goats that were brought to the priest. On the one goat, the priest confessed the sins of the people. The one goat was killed as a sacrifice for the people's sins. The other goat was symbolically taken into a far place by a fit man and a picture there of the transferring of the sins of the people, bearing the sins of the people far away. In the New Testament, the theme of substitution is found as a precursor of sorts to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Passover feast, conspicuously and very adequately features a substitute. In Exodus 12, God had them prepare for the Passover as a deliverance from Egypt and during the time of their deliverance from Egypt and bondage. Jesus went through his passion as the, we've known, known it. He went through his suffering 
during Passover week and filled, fulfilled the Passover types, many of them at the precise minute and the, and the moment that his death fulfilled of the types that were fulfilled, many of them at the exact moment. The Passover lamb was a substitute for every male firstborn who would accept it. And in that same way, Jesus became a substitute for all of mankind. And in our study and our passage today, like I said, a visual right in that time was Jesus bearing the sin and bearing the punishment that Barabbas had earned. John chapter 10, verse 18, tells us that Jesus did this willingly. He laid down his life willingly. There's nothing that we could do to save ourselves. We were completely unable, inadequate, and so God did it for us. The Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53 makes it very clear that the substitution, the substitutionary death of Christ was enough. It talks in verse 5 of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the punishment of our sins was upon him. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our sorrows, our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken smitten of God, and afflicted. And it just goes on. And I, I was just so struck again as I looked at this psalm, at this uh, passage of Scripture here in Isaiah 53, and noticed the, the he's and the we's and the contrast. How we saw it and how God saw it. What God was doing in relation to what we had done. Such a powerful passage of Scripture. Jesus' substitution for us was perfect. It was suitable. It was enough. It was sufficient. Unlike the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament that needed continual, ongoing, daily, yearly. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. And it goes on to say in that same passage how that Jesus did what he did once for all. And he sat down. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 talks about the, the fact that the shedding of blood is the requirement for the remission of sins. Some people make the mistake of thinking that since Jesus died for the sins of the world, everybody will go to heaven someday. That's incorrect. The substitutionary death applies to the people who apply the blood to their life. There's a responsibility, much like it was for the Old Testament Passover. The father, the firstborn, the head of the household was responsible to apply the blood. And if the blood was not applied, the punishment applied to that home. And it's that same way for us today. The blood of the Passover needs to be applied in our lives. It's not automatic. 
somehow because we're born into some certain family or we're a member or a part of some certain church or follow some certain creed. The blood needs to be applied. We need to make that decision. We need to avail ourselves. We need to turn our hearts and our, our minds toward Jesus. Otherwise, he is not the substitutionary atonement for, for us. He is not responsible for the punishment that we earned. <clears throat> the blood needs to be applied to the door of our heart. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. <clears throat> how often, how many times, how many people have ever read the story of the crucifixion and thought or said, it's not fair. It's not right. Totally unfair. The way the soldiers treated Jesus wasn't right. The way the witnesses lied about him wasn't right. The way Pilate spinelessly washed his hands tried to wash the guilt, attempting to make himself unresponsible for Jesus' death. Wasn't right. The crown of thorns wasn't right. The scourging wasn't right. Totally unfair. What they did to Jesus was a crime. The greatest crime in history. Why did he have to die? I think to see the answer to some of those questions, we have to understand the work of substitution. And especially in our sermon today, I'd like to take a look at Matthew 27 and look at the visual of what Christ did in direct connection with what Barabbas had done. We don't know for sure if Jesus ever met Barabbas. Perhaps he did. The Bible doesn't tell us. Barabbas was a man who played a key part in the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. We don't read in the Bible that Barabbas ever spoke a word. As far as the Gospels record, he, there's no words that are recorded. But all four Gospels mention Barabbas by name. Barabbas is mentioned in the Bible 38 times in 38 verses in the New Testament. For example, in comparison, Judas Iscariot is mentioned only 32 times. We don't know anything about Barabbas' family. We don't know if he was married or if he was single. We don't know his age, how old he was. What we do know, we can say in a few short sentences. Barabbas was guilty. He had done something that deserved death. He was on death row. And people that committed the crimes that he did were crucified. Jesus was innocent. He had done nothing 
to deserve crucifixion. But yet, the story records that Barabbas lived and Jesus died. Who was Barabbas? All four of the Gospels mention him, as I've already said. In the King, uh, in NIV, Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner, a notable known prisoner, a criminal. Mark says that he was in prison with other insurrectionists. And as part of the insurrection, as part of the protest or the demonstration that he and others were a part of, Barabbas had committed murder. Luke says that he was in prison for insurrection and murder. John says that he had been arrested or taken as part of a rebellion, which is the same thing as insurrection, a protest. When Peter preached in Solomon's porch there in Acts chapter 3, he called Barabbas a murderer. In any case, what Barabbas had done was clearly known. He was a noteworthy, notable, and notorious prisoner because of his crimes, because of his passion and involvement in the crimes that he had committed. Because of the type of crimes that he had done, he was in the worst category of criminals. He was condemned to die in the most shameful way, manner, at that time. That was on a cross at the hands of Roman soldiers who were trained in brutality, trained in creative killing. Whatever Barabbas had once been, he was now completely without honor. And there was no hope whatsoever of being delivered from his, the death that was impending as part of his sentence. The scriptures basically say that he was part of three crimes. He was a robber, a murderer, and one who was part of a rebellion, a national rebellion. <clears throat> the Greek term for robber means that he was a plunderer. It invokes the idea of marauding or um, having some sort of organized um, looting that was going on. He was an outlaw who financed other outlaws, who was part of a, of a broader circle of outlaws. The same word, robber or plunderer, is used to describe what happened to the, to the man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was plundered. He fell among robbers. And those robbers beat him and left him for dead, robbed him of what goods they could get, and left him there. That's the kind of outlaw that Barabbas seems to have been. It's also the same word that's used in Matthew 27 to describe the thieves, or the men who were crucified with Jesus, one on his left and one on his right. They were plunderers, insurrectionists, people who were involved in organized crime. These men that were crucified with Jesus 
were probably Confederates of Barabbas. It was a time of year where criminals were killed. Barabbas probably should have been, perhaps would have been crucified on that middle cross on that particular day. So that was the type of bloody, brutal, criminal, already judged guilty, already condemned to die. That was the kind of person that Barabbas was. Prison was where he belonged. You just don't let men like this out on the streets. He was a cold-blooded killer, sort of like some of the cold-blooded terrorists in our day. He was a menace to society, and when you add the word notorious to that, it means that people knew about Barabbas. He was sort of a household, household name at that time. His name, though, Barabbas, is very interesting. The word bar means son of. Peter, for example, was called by Jesus. Remember, he was called Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Bar-Jonah. A Jewish boy entering manhood to this day has a right that they call Bar Mitzvah. That means son of the law. Bar means son, son of. Abbas means father. Bar Abbas, son of the father. It's possible. possible that Barabbas's father was a rabbi, somebody who was known as a father, a teacher in Israel, son of the father. For what it's worth, I have no way of proving this, but it seems to fit. Many of the earliest Greek manuscripts of the New Testament say that Barabbas is a surname sort of like Stolzfus is my surname. And they say that Barabbas' first name was Jesus, or Joshua. The same name, actually, Jesus or Joshua, either way. It was a common name in that day. Jesus, son of the Father. It kind of calls to shed some light, if that is true, on Matthew 26, verse 17. I'm sorry, Matthew 27, verse 17. Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? The same thought is brought out just a little later.
Verse 22 and 21, the governor, Pilate, answered, Whither of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Jesus Barabbas. And Pilate said unto them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? It's very easy for us to see the similarity, if indeed that's true. I can't prove it. But it was customary, Scripture says, for the Roman governor at that time to release prisoners, or a prisoner, to extend a pardon. Sort of like at certain times of the year, our president issues pardons. It goes back to this era, perhaps even earlier, where Pilate, the governor, issues pardons. And so the thought comes to Pilate's mind. And Pilate, by this time, was thoroughly convinced that Jesus was innocent. He mentions it numerous times. He is innocent, called him innocent, tried to persuade the Jews of his innocence. And so Jesus, I'm sorry, Pilate, gets this thought and this idea that perhaps he could offer to pardon Barabbas, thinking that there would be no possible way, there would be no possible thought given to the Jews being okay with a notorious criminal being released out on the streets at a time like this. They wouldn't be okay with that. However, Pilate seems to have underestimated the Jews. And he didn't he seemed to underestimate the hatred that they had for Jesus, who was called Christ. Most likely, the people who were pardoned by Pilate would have been petty criminals, political prisoners, sort of like to this day, where something sort of um, shady was done, maybe couldn't totally, truly be proven, and at some point later on, a pardon is issued. This was customary in Pilate's day. Probably never would a man release, would Pilate release a man like Barabbas, a violent radical, a terrorist like Barabbas. <clears throat> verse 27, verse 17. Whither of the twain will ye that I release unto you? Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? That was the question. Pilate set before them this, this option. Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Jesus, son of the Father. One of them was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, the Bible tells us. The other was thoroughly wicked. He was the equal and opposite of Jesus who was called Christ. Militantly malicious, as terroristic, and self-motivated, and self-driven, up to his own agenda, completely resigned to do whatever he could to carry out his agenda and his motivation 
unto, even to the point of giving his life for it. Jesus, on the other hand, was completely committed, completely passionate about doing the will of the Father. Not his will, but the Father's will. Well, for whatever we want to say about Barabbas, I was struck with the thought as I prepared that we are all like Barabbas. There's not near as much difference between me and Barabbas, not near as much difference as there is between me and Christ, Jesus, Son of the Father. I am Barabbas. I could be a murderer left to myself. I could be a thief, a criminal. I could be an insurrectionist. I could be a lawbreaker. I could be a rioter. I could be any fill-in-the-blank word there. I could be justly imprisoned. I could be rightfully condemned. But the truth is that Barabbas was released. Released from the penalty that he had earned by a substitute. And the fact is that I can be released too. You can be released from the penalty that you have earned just like Barabbas was, and by the same person. You can be released from the penalty of your sin. Barabbas stands for every son of Adam who ever walked the planet Earth. Barabbas stands for me. I needed a release, or I was going to die. Bernard of Clairvaux, in the 12th century, approximately 1153 BC or AD, penned the words, O sacred head, now wounded. It's number 240 in our songbooks. The one verse speaks of the issue of our sin and Jesus' death. It says, What thou, my Lord, hast suffered for all sin's gains. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor and grant to me thy grace. That verse captures the whole problem of the human race. Every one of us is destined for death, eternal separation from God without any hope. And we've all done well in that department. We've all done our share. We've all done deeds. We've all done things that have cut us off. We have all done what God said we would do when we are left to our own feeble strategies. Most of us think of ourselves as pretty good, or at least we're not as bad as some people. And that's probably true in one sense. We haven't done some of the terrible things that we read about in the news or in the newspaper. But our hands are still not clean. Our hands are still dirty. Our hands, our lives are still stained by sin. 
We have cheated. We have lied. We have gossiped. We've done other things. We have falsely accused. We've made excuses. We've cut corners. We have lost our temper. We have mistreated others. But you know, when we finally get a glimpse of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, and how great is our sin, or maybe another way of saying it, how innocent, how unjust is his death as a replacement for us, for me. He died instead of me. He took the punishment that was, that was placed on me that I had earned. We sort of resonate, don't we, with the verse in the scripture where it talks about our goodness being nothing but filthy rags. The things that we have done, the things that we attempt to do to earn our, our cleansing is nothing but filthy rags. The beauty of the Christian gospel shines out of this story. Jesus, the innocent, takes the place of Barabbas, the guilty. A sinner went free that day. And an innocent man died, took the punishment that was intended for the sinner. That should have been a catastrophe. That should have been a disaster. But the fact is, it's one of the best stories of all time. It's the greatest story. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, took upon him the sin of the whole world, the death of God's Son, God's only beloved Son. And as a result of that, he took a hold of the keys that had been given to Satan. I don't think that I can properly imagine the transfer of power that may or did take place that day. I think the Bible sort of indicates that Satan had much more power than he does maybe even today. But the death of God's Son and his subsequent resurrection is the story of good news. It is the gospel for all time and for all people. It's the, it's the story that I need to claim for myself in order to attain eternal relationship with God, to be prepared and ready to die. That needs to be my story. I'm responsible to turn my heart and my head to that. Jesus does not ever force us. He does not ever prod us. He has made the opportunity available for me and for all of us to accept it. And the most logical thing, the most reasonable thing, the most realistic thing that any of us could do is to turn ourselves to that. To place ourselves in a position where Jesus' love and his grace can be poured out into our lives. It was our sin that drove him there, but it was his love that kept him on the cross. Pay attention to the words of Isaiah 53 once again. Isaiah 53 verse 6. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one, every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. How much more clear could it be? We have all turned to our own way. Every one of us has done things that, were, that put us outside of fellowship with God. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, God, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Finally, as I close this sermon, we are left with the question that Pilate asked. The question that Pilate asked. What shall I do? What shall I then do with Jesus? Jesus who is called Christ. Jesus, Son of the Father. What shall I do with Jesus? Well, we can stand back and say, I don't care about him. I don't want Jesus in my life. We can push him away and say, leave me alone. Stay out of my life. You know, the thing about that is that Jesus honors that when we do that. He just might honor that. He might just stay out of our lives and out of our situation. There couldn't be a more scary thing that I can imagine. The right thing, what we need to do, is open our lives and our hearts and our heads, our minds, to Him and invite Him to be my Savior. Welcome him into my life. Make sure that the blood is applied to the areas of my life that I've been working at doing on my own. Apply the grace that God pours out to all people into my life and extend that to those around me. There couldn't be a more reasonable thing for any of us to do. There could not be anything better that any of us could do on ourselves. It's the safest thing we could do. It's the most trusting thing we could do. My encouragement, best I know, run to the cross, all of us. Let's lay hold on Jesus who loved us and died for us in our stead, took upon himself the punishment that we had earned. He took the sentence that we had earned for ourselves by the deeds that we'd done. But the choice is yours. The choice really, truly is ours. My prayer is that God would give all of us the grace to believe in Jesus and crown him as Savior and Lord of our lives. That's my prayer for all of us here this morning. The choice truly is ours. I so much appreciated the teaching that John gave us here in our our, um, opening devotions. The doctrine of communion, the teaching 
It's true and accurate, according to Scripture. This needs to be a celebration. It needs to be a realization of our obligation and our duty to place our lives in Christ. And I think one of the visuals that we have before us here in the bread and the grape juice, and even just the visual of our traditional habitual filing, we, it's like we're coming to Christ. By our filing through here today and participating in communion, we're acknowledging that I'm coming to Christ with what ails me. I'm placing my hands, my life in Christ. I'm allowing Christ, I'm recognizing him as a substitution to bear the penalty that I had earned. May God give all of us the grace to believe in Jesus and crown him as Savior and Lord. Let's stand together for a prayer at this time.